who the Corinthians are and what God has done for them. We saw last week that there is a big challenge in, in their lives, big challenge in their church life. The unity of the church was getting broken down by celebrities and people following men and rather than following Christ and Christ crucified. And so we were exhorted last week to, to follow in unity. We were exhorted last week to hold on to the, the gospel message. And, and, and Paul develops this theme. And we're going to pick it up uh, in, in the verses that we read earlier. And we're going to uh, continue on in, in that latter part, that last little section of uh, chapter 1. And we're going to go into uh, chapter 2. I'm sure you all enjoyed your schooling experience. I'm sure you are enjoying it. But I want you to just go back in your memories to when you were playing as children in the playground. When you first started getting interested in sport and playing games together. I'm sure that there's people here who play basketball or football or other things, or perhaps there was other games that you played together in the playground. I want you to, to think about how you chose the team, how the team was chosen. I don't know if you remember those occasions. Perhaps it was in a, in a PE physical education class where you were all lined up. Do you remember that? You were all put in a line. And then possibly the, the two best players were, were, were picked first. And they were made the captains of the teams. And then they had to choose who was in their team. Now, if you're not very sporty, you don't enjoy sport, you will hate that moment, won't you? You probably remember it in your minds. Those of you that were really good at sports, you won't know what I'm talking about. You may have been doing the choosing. You may have got chosen first. You may have been advising your friend, choose him, choose her. He's really good. He's really good. We need that person. And the whole choosing of the team was done on who was best, who would be good for the team, who would be able to score the goal, who would be able to run the fastest, who would be able to do that. And then the people at the end, well, it was hard for them. And in some ways, they just really weren't even wanted. And you, you, you may have been one of those people. Just come, come, and that's it. You see, the team was chosen around who was going to be best for it. We all go to the market, don't we? We all, we all do shopping. We all buy vegetables. And, and, you, and you see some people, and I think they must be professional vegetable pickers. Because they, they, they take the vegetable, and they don't... I mean, I, I've got this wrong, yes? Because when I go there, I just grab the vegetable, take the bag, take it home, and then get in trouble. <laughs> because potatoes now, there can be some very good ones there, and there can be some really bad ones, can't there? And, and so people, when they choose their fruit and vegetable, what are they doing? They're looking to pick the best. You, you look to pick the best, don't you? So I want you to think a little bit abstractly. I don't know if any of you played a uh, uh, fantasy football league or something like that where you choose a fantasy team and, and you put together a team. Some of you lads, I'm sure, will have done that. I'm sure you'll have thought it through, uh, thinking of the dream Nigerian team, who that would be. 
Or maybe you prefer to use the Premier League. That's much more fun, possibly. But when you, when you choose a, a team like that, when you choose that, you're looking for the best, aren't you? You're looking for the different people. You need a good goalkeeper. You need a good forward player. You're looking to complement it. Or again, if you're cooking, you look for the best ingredients. So I want to just throw this question out here. If you are going to put a church together, if you're going to bring together a church, and say, let's say you're going to have a church of 100 members, who would you choose for that membership? Who would you look for from that membership? Who would you be wanting to have in the church? I think, obviously, we'd be thinking, well, we need some smart people, don't we? We want to have some smart people within our church, some smart people who can teach the Bible well, some smart people who can do apologetics, who can argue God's word professionally and academically with great arguments and great words. We, we, we would we'd want to choose some highly gifted people, people with great gifts and talents, some people, some great musicians possibly, some people that can sing really well. We would be looking at people that had good gifts, excellent gifts, who could serve the church. We'd want some rich people, wouldn't we? We'd need to have some rich people in the membership. Rich people who could, could, could bankroll the church's activities. So we could have a bigger and better building. We could have a more impressive sound system that we could put leaflets out that were glossed and gilt-edged and looked amazing. Maybe we should have some powerful people from the local community within the church. Some politicians, some, some members of, of, of parliament, some, some, some doctors. Let's have some gifted, intelligent people. Let's have some people of influence. Some of the older elders. Some of the people who are heading up local commerce. Some, some businessmen. They could represent the church's needs. Well, we are looking at this church in Corinth. And if you looked at it, you would realize that this wasn't a super church of your imagination. You'd have looked at them, and as they looked at themselves, they may have thought, well, how can this be? You see, Paul, when he looked at this church, in verse 26, he said, Brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Yes, there were for a few. But there was not many. The vast majority of that church was very, very average or below average. It wasn't an A-team church. It was just a very, very average church. And can you imagine when the Corinthians heard this, as this letter was being read to them, and they say, "For consider your calling. Yes, we're believers, we're Christians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. I think at first hearing that, that could be quite upsetting, couldn't it? Quite humbling. The church at Corinth had to acknowledge that they were not a super church. They didn't have amazing things going on. 
in that respect as the world looks on. And I can imagine that church at Corinth and as they had their church members meeting and they were, they were planning to do something and maybe they had a, a plan ahead of them and they wanted to do this project and maybe they're thinking, if only we had more rich people, we could do this. If only we had more powerful people influencing, we could do this. If only we had more gifted people, we could do that. Maybe that's what the church were thinking when they read that and heard that. There was so much more they thought they could be doing, but they weren't there, they weren't at it, they weren't able to do it because they were just very average. I think, friends, as we look round here at Left Kosher Protestant Church, we, we need to be humbled by our lack of resources. We, we shouldn't pretend that we're something that we're not. We are blessed with gifted people, for sure. But there's not many who are amazingly wise in the world standards here. We've probably got a disproportionate amount of PhD holders in the world, in our church. But the reality is, when you look at what we are as a body together, our resources are small, our income is insignificant, our impact is little, And it would be very easy for the Apostle Paul to say to us, consider your calling, brothers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're saved. That's not questioned. But not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. And not many of you are of noble birth. And then we have to read on. Because... Verse 26 is followed by verse 27. And verse 27 starts with the word, but. Now, whenever you read the Bible, whenever you read in the Bible, a top tip here for Bible reading is if you read the word, but, you have to take a breath, step back, and then carry on. Because something important is being said here. A negative has been said in many ways, yes? We can see that as a negative. And then there's this verse 27, there comes a but. And what is this but? And the but is our first heading for this morning. God chooses the weak. But God chooses the weak. You see, the New Testament and and, and the church and in God's economy, it's an upside down economy. The world puts so much value on these things. Worldly wisdom, worldly power, noble birth. They put so much emphasis on nowadays in what's in your bank account, what's in your education status, what position you have in society. And God, as he looks on his church, he chooses those that are foolish. In the world. God chooses what is foolish. God chooses what is weak in the world. God chooses what is low and despised in the world. 
And God chooses even the things that are not. And so he said to these Corinthians, look, there's not many of you of, of this status, but look, listen. It's not the world's standards that we're going by here. It's God's standards. And God chooses those that the world sees as foolish. God chooses those that the world sees as weak. God chooses chooses those who are, are despised and low in the world's eyes. God chooses those that are not even anything in the world's eyes. And that's who he chooses. And I think this would have been revolutionary and liberating to the Colossians as they heard this because they'd heard themselves described and they're thinking, oh dear, that's us. And then God's saying, but I am the one who's chosen you. I'm the one that's chosen you. I'm chosen this. And, And as we look around ourselves this morning as a congregation, in the world's eyes, we are foolish. In the world's eyes, we are weak and lowly. We are despised and we are regarded as nothing. And friends, for some of us, that can feel like a problem. But it's the exact opposite. Because God has chosen us. God has chosen you despite your weakness, despite your foolishness in the world's eyes and weakness in the world's eyes. Despite the fact that we are low and despised in the world, despite the fact that we are nothing in the world's eye, God has chosen us. And listen what God has chosen to do with this broken, weak church in Corinth. He said, what is foolish in the world will shame the wise. What is weak in the world will shame the strong. What is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, are to bring to nothing the things that are. That is truly what an overcoming ministry is. We hear all about overcoming, overcoming. Well, yes, this is overcoming. Because the foolish in the world, those that are foolish in the world's eyes shall shame the wise. Those who are weak in the world shall shame the strong. That is that's low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not will bring to nothing the things that are. And this is not just for the people in Corinth. This is for us right now in LPC. So I say, in in the world's eyes, we are foolish. See, the world laughs at our biblical view on creation. We say in the beginning, because God said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it in six days. And the world laughs at us. And the world laughs at marriage. And the world laughs at our sexuality and our desire to be pure. The world laughs at our biblical view of gender, of ethics, of morals. And the world looks on and laughs at us. The world laughs at our weak nature. The world uses police and politics to harass, and not everywhere, but in some situations. The world doesn't care about what we think because we don't have political might. In in, in the UK at the moment, there's freedom of speech for everybody unless you're a Christian. 
And then you're told to shut up. And, and the world considers us as nothing. And, and we can feel that at times. And it can be a challenge to you because you are bright, smart people and you're academic. And by being a Christian in some ways, you are throwing your whole opportunities of what the world has to offer away. Because you're going to be faithful and follow Jesus. And the world will say, you are mad. And what God is saying, I chose you. I chose you. You you are mine. And despite the fact the world considers us as nothing, friends, think what you are part of. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are part of something that is 2,000 years old. 2,000 years old. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world to die on the cross to save his people from their sins, to take the punishment that they deserve. And those of you that are trusting that now, that is what saved you. Christ on the cross saved you. And over the millennium, over the hundreds of years, there have been kingdoms that have risen and fallen to nothing. And there's been men and women who've laughed at the church and they're laughing no more. And God's church continues and carries on. And now the church, God's family, is bigger than it ever has been and it is continuing to grow. And why is this happening? Why does God use the foolish in the world's eyes? Why does God use the weak in the world's eyes? Why does God use those who are low and despised? Why does God use those that are nothing? He does it because verse 29 gives us the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, our salvation is all about God's glory. And the local church is all about God's glory. And, and this is humbling for us. But we have to be humbled. And we need to see in this that we have no reason to boast whatsoever. Last week we, we heard and I touched on the fact that boasting will break up Unity. And God wants us to be united. And as he is here, and as we hear this this first point, God has chosen the weak. And we can give thanks for that. He chose us. He brought us into his family. And he did it so that we might not boast in the presence of God. So that we can stand amazed in the presence of God. So that we can worship in the presence of God. So that we can live to his glory and enjoy him forever. And so just as a very practical application, friends, we have nothing to boast about. As individuals or as a church. But also there's a huge word of encouragement to us here. Because just as the Corinthians looked on and saw their church and saw it as being a very sort of average church and nothing really particularly special, as we look round here, we might think, well, God, what's your plan? And the reality is God has got a plan for LPC. 
And God has put exactly the right people in here to do his work and be part of his plan. There's no mistaking about it. And you may feel weak and you may feel insignificant and you may feel like you want to do outreach but you don't know what words to say. And that doesn't matter. Because God has chosen you. And God has brought you into this. And he chose us in all our faults and all our weaknesses to do his work. And so friends, we need to quit moaning and quit worrying about our lack of resource and our lack of ability. And we need to stand back and say, God, help us to do what we should be doing as a church, as your people. You've called us. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are insignificant. Yes, we are not what we think we ought to be. Because that's our wisdom. God's wisdom is far greater. And God has brought us here. And he's brought us as a time now. And he's brought us to do a job. Just as the Corinthians had a job to do those 2,000 years ago in Corinth. You and I right here have been chosen by God. In our weakness and our insignificance in a lack of power, and a lack of resource, to do his work. And so let's get up and get on and be the church that Christ came to save. See, just as we see here that God chooses the weak, I secondly want us to note that Jesus saves the weak. Second point, but Jesus saves the weak. We get that from chapter 1 and verse 30. You see, as I've been saying this, as I've been saying that we are weak, as I've been saying that we are foolish in the world's eyes, as I've been saying these things, I'm sure that there's some of you, if not all of you, have been thinking, that's not me. I'm, I'm the wise one. I'm, I'm the powerful one. I'm, 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 I'm the one that has got something to offer. I've got gifts. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. Our natural sinful nature wants to be something. And right in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that natural, that, that they, they, they had no sin. They were not sinners. They were perfect. They were right before God. They had a perfect relationship with God. And there was one thing they were told not to do. Basically, they were told just to submit to God for that one thing. And they wanted to be God. They wanted to be something. And sin entered in. And, and, and we want to be God. We don't say that. But when we reject these things, when we, when we think we are greater than we actually are, when we, we're actually boasting. We're actually saying that we are more than what we are. And we're possibly vying for God's place. You see, we, we have a language, don't we? And, and some of us, we say, I chose God. But it tells us here that God chose us. I made a decision to follow. Well, there's a sense where we do make a decision to follow. And there's a sense that we respond to the call of salvation. But so often we take the emphasis of that and bring it upon ourselves. And Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ah, my faith saved me. No. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that 
no one may boast. Jesus came to save the weak. Jesus came to save those who cannot save themselves. And friend, if you today think that you are saving yourself, Jesus did not come for you. If you think you can save yourself by what you do, by what you give, by what you say, by the fact that your parents are Christians, Jesus didn't come for you. Now, I caveat that because we can all be humbled. Jesus came for those who cannot save themselves. And if that's where you are now, you need to come to the honest realization that you cannot save yourself. Christ came to save the weak and the helpless, those who cannot save themselves. He came to save them and, and do in their lives what, he, what you cannot do. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot do it. Even if you stopped sinning now and lived a hundred years of perfect life, you would not be good enough for God because of your past sin. And even if you managed only ever to have sinned once in your life, just once, that's enough to keep you out of God's presence for eternity. And there's nothing that you could do to redeem yourself for that one sin. But the reality is we all know that it's not one sin, is it? We will be happy if it's one sin a day. But the reality is it's plenty sins. And we cannot redeem ourselves. But grace comes in and grace is held through faith and faith is given to us. You see, Paul put it like this. He says, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. He's talking of God. And he says, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. And we could think of it like this to start off with. God is the source of our life as creator in Jesus. John 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Christ breathed life into us. Physical life. But from the context, Paul is talking far more than that. He's going far deeper than just us being created and given life there. He's, he says that God gives us spiritual life in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is talking to believers. He's not talking to everybody. And so if you are a believer today, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is what God has done for you. God gives us spiritual life in Jesus and he, he unpacks this and he, and he brings it further. He talks about our wisdom and our wisdom is from Christ. Talks about our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And, and just look at our wisdom. What, what's he, what's he talking about? Our wisdom there. 2 Timothy 3, 15 sheds some light on it. Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, from a childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You've been acquainted to God's word, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the way of salvation. That is wisdom. 
The wisdom that we have in Christ is the way of salvation. The world's wisdom is to get rich quick. The world's wisdom is to succeed. The world's rich wisdom is to be something. And Christ's wisdom is so that we can be made right with God through him. We have his word to see it and learn it and, and, and be persuaded by it through the work of the Holy Spirit. But our wisdom is then followed by our righteousness. Our righteousness is not our righteousness in, in the sense that it's ours. Our righteousness is our righteousness because it's been given to us by Christ. You see, if you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior now, God the Father looks on at you and sees you as someone who hasn't sinned. Because Jesus stands in your place. And you're given his righteousness. Romans 8 verse 10. Paul puts it like this. But if Christ is in you. If Christ is in you. Christ in you. Although your body is dead of sin. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. Christ's righteousness has been given to us. Who are trusting in Jesus as our saviour. Our wrong, our dead sin is taken away and being dealt with. And our spirit is alive because of what Jesus has done for us. The price has been paid. The punishment has been paid. And now we are righteous. Our righteousness has been given to us by God through Jesus. And then we have another long word. Our sanctification. Our sanctification, we need to unpack what sanctification means. It's, it's a process of becoming holy. It's to be made holy. Well, are we holy? Are you holy? Are you perfect? Are you without sin? Well, on one level, no, we're not. But on another level, and on a more important level, we are. We've been made sanctified. 2 Thessalonians uh, 2 and verse 13, at the end of it says like this, because God chose you as his first fruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ sanctifies us. The Lord Jesus Christ makes us holy. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us righteousness because of what he has done on the cross. This is a gospel. This is the good news. And as we live in this world, we are those that are being sanctified. And one day, when this world is finished and we're in glory, we will be pure and perfect and without sin. But now we have that right to call ourselves sanctified. And in the process of sanctification, because of what Jesus has done. You see, he is our redemption. Our sin is what separates us. And his wisdom draws us. His righteousness washes us, makes us clean in God's eyes. His sanctification makes us the person we're going to be. And our redemption is the fact that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the Lord. As written in Galatians 3 and verse 13, he said, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
We were talking about the cross last week, weren't we? We were talking about how it was, uh, how it's been sanitized now and how they would have thought about it back then and they would have thought of it as something that was cursed, something that was shocking, something that was horrible. And, and, and the cross in many ways is, is a symbol of the punishment that the curse is on our sin. And in fact, it wasn't just a symbol, it was that. Because when Christ hung on the tree, when Christ's life was being given up by him, the wrath of God, the curse that we deserved, was placed upon him. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has paid the price. This is our redemption. And it's a redemption that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make this up. We cannot make it right with God. The only way we can be made right with God is by Christ, the sinless one, dying on the cross, taking the punishment and redeeming us from the curse of the law. Jesus, God's only son, paid the price of our sins. He redeemed us and the price was being a curse for us. And so Paul is saying to these Corinthians, God sent his son Jesus, and Jesus saves the weak. Jesus is the full package. There is nothing more that is needed for our salvation. It is all there. Christ has paid it in full. And as Paul gets to the end of that statement, and as he's imagining that those Corinthians are reeling in their thoughts and thinking, this is amazing what's been done for me. He says in verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so practically, we, we need to think of it like this, don't we? That, that, that This is amazing, isn't it? This is what makes us a church. This is what makes us a body of people. Our wisdom is given to us by Christ. Our righteousness is given to us by Christ. Our sanctification is given to us by Christ. Our redemption is by Christ. And Christ has done this because God has brought it about. And God chose us. And God chose us as a weak ones. And Christ died for us as the weak ones. And the full package is there. And we should not boast. We should only boast in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? We should be praising God. We should be thanking God. We should be living for God. But thirdly, this passage goes on. And thirdly, we see that the Spirit gives power to the weak. But... The Spirit gives power to the weak. That's our third point. You see, God chooses us. God plans our salvation. God makes the way of salvation through Jesus. But we need to hear the gospel and we need to respond to it. I want you to listen carefully here. Very, very carefully. God chooses us, absolutely. He plans our salvation. He makes the way of salvation through Jesus. But the way of salvation happens is us hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. We need to hear it and we need to respond to it. 
And so the question is, how do we hear it and how do we respond to it? What does this process happen? What does this process look like? And Paul was used by God to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news to the Galatians. And so what did the Apostle Paul's preaching look like? Ah, There's some of the books there of, of old preachers. And you can still listen to some of these old preachers from 100 years ago. And it's quite amazing to listen because in some ways they don't sound like much, but in other ways what they say is incredible. And I sometimes think I would love to have a recording of the Apostle Paul's preaching. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine sort of swiping through and your YouTube favorites and the Apostle Paul pops up? Oh, we can listen to him on Athens, Mars Hill. That's That's a great one to listen to. Let's listen to it. And, and, and we maybe would think that the Apostle Paul had some amazing presence in the pulpit. Well, I'm not being heightest, but apparently he was quite a short, small little man. That's what they say. I, I, I don't know if actually. He'd be the same height as me in heaven because we'll all be the perfect height. We don't know what he looked like, but he says he wasn't impressive. But we, we, we would think that he was impressed with great oratory. We, we would think that he had some amazing arguments, some incredible apologetics, some wisdom that you just would listen to and think, wow, I must be saved. What can I do to be saved? You, you, you'd think that his illustrations would be cool and, and, and packed with wisdom and just so much there. But no, this is what he says. He says, when he came to you, brothers, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't come in dancing. He didn't come in shouting and parading himself. He didn't come in with this amazing oratory gift that had people eating out of his hands. In fact, it was worse than that. He, he opens up, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul confessing what his preaching was like and what his testimony was like in Corinth. He says in verse 4, it was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Can you imagine this? This is conf- the confession of probably one of the most best used preachers of all time. The amazing missionary, the Apostle Paul, the evangelist Apostle Paul, the preacher Apostle Paul, the author through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of many books, the Apostle Paul. And he says, when I came to Corinth, it was not with lofty speech. It was not with wisdom. I was there in weakness. I was in fear. I was in trembling. I think he was wishing he had a pulpit so that when his legs were going jelly, he could hide behind it. He was fearful. This fearless Paul, who'd looked death in the face, had much weakness. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 4, And my speech and my message were not, were not, plausible words of wisdom. You know, the Apostle Paul would not have been asked to do a TED Talk. Yeah? He wouldn't have even been asked to do a TED Talk at CIU. Yeah, never mind the Ivy League uh, universities of the world. And in fact, who knows what we'd have thought about him if we'd heard him. And we have to ask ourselves, what made the difference? 
What's happening? What's the disconnect? This is this man who is feeble and weak. This is a man who is trembling. This is a man who hasn't got great words of, of, of wisdom. And, and we have to note the first thing, the first thing that made the difference is his message. His message, he said in verse 2 of chapter 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The difference of the Apostle Paul and his preaching starts in his message. He didn't go down the philosophers and come up with some great words of wisdom. He didn't go to nature and bring something in. He just preached the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. He looked out to the congregation and told them that they'd sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He looked them in the eye and said, you are going to go to hell unless... And then he would present the Lord Jesus Christ who left glory and came to this world and was born of a lady, of a woman, of a virgin, brought into this world in that humiliating way for a deity. Totally man, totally God. And then he was nailed to a cross. And he gave his life for the sins of his people. Crucified. And that's what Paul preached. You see, nowadays we get emotional calls to salvation. And all you get is an emotional response. And you get worldly wise calls to salvation. And all you get is a worldly response. True salvation comes from when the gospel, Christ and Christ crucified, is preached. And secondly, when the Spirit works. When the Spirit works. Paul's message was on point. It was Christ and Christ crucified. But that wasn't enough. You see, Paul's preaching was different because it came, verse 2, so chapter 2 and verse 4, the second part of it. It came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see, Paul's weakness and Paul's preaching that wasn't particularly impressive was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That made the difference. That made it alive. That made it living. That made it so that people's hearts were changed. It wasn't the Apostle Paul's great arguments. It was because the Holy Spirit was at work. The Holy Spirit changed those people's minds and hearts. The Holy Spirit did it. You see, nowadays we're told that we need a smoke machine. And we need a, a sanctified saxophonist to be backtracking the sermon, to be going from a major key to a minor key so that our hearts can be pulled. We don't need this. We don't need an altar call. We don't need celebrity pastors crying crocodile tears. What we need is men of God proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified and proclaiming it in their weakness, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way people are saved. And friends, this is what we need. The Corinthians experienced a man who knew his weakness, and yet despite his weakness, he faithfully proclaimed Christ. And in his weakness, the power of the Holy Spirit came down and everything was changed. And a church at Corinth was brought into existence. And a church at Ephesus was brought into existence. And a church all over Asia Minor was brought into existence. 
And it was emulated and others were doing the same and they were weak men faithfully proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is the church not growing now? Because it stopped preaching Christ and Christ crucified. And what's the Holy Spirit going to bless? Some man dancing and saying this is a purpose for your life? Ten points to have a better life? No, we need to hear the truth. We need to hear the truth that we're going to hell. We need to hear the truth that the only way we can be made right is through Christ. And we need the Holy Spirit to work in power. You see, this is the way the church has hope for the future. And it's in that verse there that says, Faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The church is in a mess now because it chases the wisdom of men. Ten steps to grow your church. Start drinking the right coffee. Start playing the right music. Make sure that everyone's smiling. when they They're all wise things, but they're not going to save people. What we need is not the wisdom of men, but what we need at Left Coast Protestant Church is God to work in his power through the Holy Spirit. And so how do we become part of it? What does this mean for us? Well, practically, we need to humble ourselves, friends, yeah? Because if we are a proud church thinking we can do it ourselves, it's never going to happen because God resists the proud. If we think that our strength, our wisdom are going to make a difference, it is not going to happen because God chooses the weak. We need to humble ourselves. We need to embrace this fact that we are weak, but in Christ we are strong. We have to embrace our weakness seeing that without, we're without hope in our church life. We're without hope in our salvation. We're without hope in our spiritual growth without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And so friends, we need to do what the Apostle Paul does and delight in our weakness. Realizing that our weakness is what God uses. God chose the weak. Jesus saves the weak. And the Holy Spirit gives power to the weak. And it's so that we won't boast. It's so that God will have all the glory. And so friends, as a church, we need to be humbled. But in alongside with that, as a church, we need to be those who are pleading that whenever we gather, the Holy Spirit will be with us. But the Holy Spirit works in power. Not the preacher thinking he's working in power, not the congregation thinking they're working in power, not the choir thinking, no. Being servants in our weakness, looking to the Holy Spirit to work in power. Because without him, there is nothing. There is nothing. <coughs> And so what I want to do for us as a church is just charge us as a church. As we pray through the news, as we were exhorted to earlier, and rightly so, we should also be praying that the Holy Spirit works in power. The Holy Spirit enables the preachers that come to this pulpit to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. That the Holy Spirit will protect us from any ideas of human wisdom that may push Christ out and make us proud. We need to plead that the Holy Spirit 
would work. And if there's anything in our lives as a church that's grieving the Holy Spirit, we need to see that, repent that, and crucify that. Because we should be letting nothing get in the way of the Holy Spirit.